0: Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor Podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I have as my guest Kevin Beale, CEO and founder of Refract. Kevin, welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Marcus. Great to be here.
0: Pleasure. Could you give the audience a quick one to two minutes on your background, how you got here and why you set up Refract?
1: Sure, I'll keep it brief. My background is in sales, and then as a sales leader working with SaaS businesses, I saw firsthand the The challenge of coaching and developing uh, uh, sales talent without having to sit alongside people on calls, demos, and meetings, and looking at two different sides of the mountain at the same time, saw some of the ways that I felt sales coaching was broken. That led us to founding uh, Refract about four years ago uh, now. So for those not familiar, Refract is a revenue intelligence platform. We analyze sales conversations, help sales leaders be able to identify what is going to increase their revenue, and improve conversations from their sales teams and some of the insights and trends that happen in uh, each of their conversations behind closed doors.
0: So there is hope for someone who's not at all technical that you can set up an AI company.
1: I kind of just about get away with the remote control, but anything much beyond that, there are far cleverer people than uh, me to do. My background is definitely uh, in sales. I'm uh, lucky enough to be surrounded by a great team. But yeah, I think there is actually an interesting debate about where some great companies have been founded by brilliant technical founders and those that have been founded by sales and marketing leaders. And Probably one for a different podcast, but an interesting debate on that.
0: I'm minded of Ross Perot saying he didn't have an MBO, but he's got 2,000 of them on his payroll.
1: If you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Under you? That's uh,
0: absolutely. So tell me, what are the four most common questions that your prospects come to you with? Yeah. So
1: I think for a lot of the prospects we work with, they're somewhere down the journey of wanting to make the investment in being able to develop and improve their teams, being able to coach our conversations, have insights to what is happening. I think one of the most common things that people come with is if we use this product, how is that going to influence and improve our revenue, which isn't necessarily, there is no magic bullet here. It would be amazing if I could say, well, you know, you turn on our product or anyone else's products you're gonna, you know, magically everyone's gonna hit quota and it's all gonna happen. So I think a lot of the time not knowing what happens behind closed doors. So when we talk about what top performers do in their sales conversations that are different to other people, most sales leaders don't have an answer to that. They don't know. It's easy for them to quote things like, They work harder, they make more dials, they're more committed, they're more driven, those things that are more overtly uh, evident. But what do they actually do in conversations with prospects and customers that make them more successful and give them more successful outcome? That is more of a black box that I think is often a a question that sales leaders are often struggling with when they come to us. Um, In
0: my experience, the best sales performers are intelligently lazy. They're not the ones making more dials. The ones who work harder aren't working smarter. So presumably you help uncover that.
1: We do. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is unfortunately still sometimes a culture in some sales organizations that it is about presenteeism The things that are measured aren't necessarily the right things to measure. Measuring the amount of dials, measuring the amount of proposals, size of you know pipeline, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Easy things to measure. But arguably, aren't right.
0: you're getting my blood boiling at the moment. What are the other common questions that they asked that perhaps they shouldn't? Perhaps
1: focusing on what their teams are or aren't uh, doing at that particular time. Looking maybe for product like ours isn't going to introduce the right process, isn't going to is going to help you measure the things and put the right things in place. For processes that, that you already have for a sales strategy that is not going to necessarily give you those things. So sometimes, especially where you know, perhaps teams are struggling, they're looking for broader answers than a revenue intelligence platform or indeed any other platform is going to give by itself.
0: I think what I see often is they're looking for a way to audit the sales activity rather than focus the attention on the right kind of behavior. And my guess is that taking a platform like RefractOn allows them to rip the scales from their eyes and get to see the truth of what really matters.
1: Exactly. And it comes back to that question of like, if I use your product, what revenue could I expect to see or by what percentage could I expect to see revenue increase is an impossible question to answer because actually I have no insight in a prospect's business on what that opportunity might look like. History would tell me that it is normally very sizable, but in terms of you know, what could be done differently and what the impact of that, that's very individual. That's about you know, a business. It's not about a technology. What Refract can certainly do, though, is start to reveal and uncover what happens in conversations, what leads to successful outcomes, what top performers do do differently, and profile those key coachable moments that happen in every single conversation. I'm really going to emphasize every single conversation. In fact, actually, that brings another one that makes my blood start to boil, is when people say, my team are all really experienced, they don't really Mm. need coaching. And I think you instantly know everything you need to know about a leader in an organization when you hear that kind of comment.
0: One year's experience, 20 times over, and an idiot at the helm. I guess one of the popular analogies
1: is you look at professional sports people, you know, the people at the top of their game, the top athletes. Can you imagine, I'm not going to bother training this week. I'm not going to analyze what happened in the last game because I'm just pretty good. I know what I'm doing. And yet in sales, that seems like an acceptable answer or an acceptable uh, position to be experienced or on top of my game or uh, know what I'm doing feels like an acceptable answer.
0: There's no department in any business that could be run as badly as the sales department. If your finance department said, I'm going to do it my way, I'm really happy with the way I do things, and to hell with the changes in the tax laws, or let's not bother collecting money this month because I can't be asked," then you'd be out of business. Why is it that sales organizations are allowed to get away with such shoddy management practices?
1: I think there isn't one single answer to that question. I think sales isn't easy. It's
0: not a big bucks.
1: And there is obviously a reason why great salespeople are, are well rewarded and revered within organizations. Possibly to your point, is because there's not necessarily a lot of those talents. One thing that again is very well documented that we do as a profession is this bizarre thing that someone is good or reasonably good at sales will then put them in charge make them a sales leader. We'll give them, like, trying not to uh, be too strong with my words, we'll give them very little support or guidance. They'll be able to figure it out, and they'll be a great leader, and they'll grow a great team because they've done it before themselves and they know how to do it. And the underinvestment in sales managers, in sales leaders, in sales coaching is, I think, one of the fundamental flaws of the industry, which perpetually fuels that cycle of underperformance.
0: Absolutely. I mean, my first management job, I was really good on the phone. And after three months, I was tapped on the shoulder and said, Marcus, congratulations, you've just been promoted. You're now a manager, build a team. And I knew nothing. And that seems to be the typical road into sales management function. Okay, let me ask you this. What are the three most crucial questions that you are never asked that you should be asked? Never
1: asked, what will I need to do to make your solution an unmitigating success? The focus is on the solution, and it comes back to solutions like Reflect are incredibly powerful and can have incredibly powerful uh, results, but not as a magic bullet. It's not a kind of, I turn reflect on, we're going to improve our revenue by 20% and everything's going to be amazing and I'll get promoted, I'll be in that uh, president's club and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is about the opportunity that tools, the inside, the data provides. I don't recall having ever been asked, what would I need to do in order to be supremely successful with your product?
0: So first question is, are you looking in the mirror? If you're not looking in the mirror when things aren't working, then chances are you're looking in the wrong place and investing in any sales enablement tool as a magic bullet will be a waste of time, effort, and money. So that's a great first unasked question. Give me two more. I think
1: just going back to that point as well, I think that's where this is obviously what I'm really passionate about. Conversations are the part where revenue is won and lost. That is where, as sales professionals, we win or lose in the conversations that we have with prospects. But because there's no easy way of saying that was an amazing conversation, that was a shitty conversation, there's no metric that kind of comes out of conversations that we have. We measure everything else, but we don't measure conversations. In fact, you know, for most organizations, it's a black box. It's a black box of you know of of what happens. So I think that. In a profession where you know, we have dashboards that measure everything, it's everything but where revenue is won and lost. And you know, I find it very difficult sometimes to get my head around why that is the case.
0: So what are you measuring in conversations within the Refract platform? Lots. So
1: everything from, and again, none of these metrics are a single silver bullet, but everything from we're analyzing things like the talk listening ratios, how many questions are being asked, what questions, where are they being asked in in conversations, what are the topics of conversations that, that happen, what are the words and phrases that are leading to more successful outcomes or that top performers are using more frequently, what attributes correlate with successful outcomes for a single organization. So when this is discussed, when that's discussed, and when there's a discussion about that, what are those ingredients that are more likely to lead to successful outcomes so that it actually starts to provide business intelligence as well as revenue intelligence of what are the things that marketing teams and product teams and so on should be looking to create conversations about because they are more likely to then be successful and have successful outcomes.
0: And give me another unasked question that sales leaders really should be asking What do successful organizations do differently in their
1: conversations? So I think unpeeling the onion of what happens in conversations in other organizations that, that causes them to be more successful. Actually, asking what you would perhaps do differently in your own conversations. We have just got involved in actually helping coach some of our clients as well, and helping with that coaching piece. And then finally, I guess maybe around coaching, the optimum level of coaching. Not many people ask, what should we be investing in coaching within our our organisation to get the best returns on investment and to get the best results.
0: So, on that note, again, I'm not asking you to divulge anything confidential, but if you look at the most successful sales teams, what proportion of their time is the manager investing in coaching?
1: There are some great studies of, uh, of this. You know, we, we see all the time that our best clients, they make that uh, investment. And you know, whilst obviously uh, uh, Refract and tools like Refract can really uh, accelerate uh, that, that they have that commitment to coaching uh, within the organization. So I think I would say that 25% of a manager or a leader's time should be dedicated to coaching their team. Countless studies show that there are no more, there is no more impactful thing that a manager or leader can do with their time other than, than coaching. Typically, to throw out a couple of stats, the, the typical manager says that they coach 5% of their time. Unfortunately, reps claim to get half as much coaching as managers say they give the pipeline review, the coffee catch-up that are often viewed as coaching by uh, managers are never viewed as uh, as coaching by reps. So I think 25% of time should be around dedicated coaching to the team. That is coaching that is going to improve performance. That's not just finding out who's going to hit target this month and giving people a a, a kick up the, uh, uh, the backside of uh, the arm. It is about things that are going to improve performance and influence outcomes and improve results on an ongoing basis rather than uh, just finding out the things you need to know to go into your board meeting.
0: I think what I see a lot of is people confuse coaching with auditing. And so the pipeline review, having a team of li- people just listening I think is a disaster. That's a waste of everyone's time. Yeah, that's one man minute. So one man minute of someone delivering their pipeline to 10 salespeople means that's 10 man minutes lost. I think where the salespeople are involved in challenging and offering constructive criticism and asking questions to pick apart each opportunity, that can be really useful. But I think managers don't really understand what coaching is. Coaching is having the other person do 80% of the heavy lifting and through asking questions. And I'm curious, in terms of the output from Refract, how are you helping your clients formulate the right kind of questions for the individual salespeople? Because when we were setting up for this meeting, you said that it's not about the big data, it's about the personalization, the individualization of the content. So, how are you helping the managers to? develop really effective coaching questions
1: so firstly around the conversations themselves we are helping pinpoint those first of all the relevant conversations so you know we allow search through any conversation a google search if you like of every conversation that every uh, uh, person is having so what are the conversations whether the rep appreciates it or not with the most coachable opportunity by the things that have or haven't happened in that uh, Conversation. Secondly, then starting to pinpoint those key moments and allowing that coaching to focus on on a key moment. I think one of the reasons why conversations are such a black box is it is an impossible investment in time to listen to anything close to all of the conversations that any of our uh, reps or or, or teams have. We need to, to find and focus the right conversations and the right moments that coaching can be impactful. So first of all we're helping to surface those so that you know we can then talk about moments and coach through those moments you know sharing feedback sharing praise sharing ideas sharing uh, constructive feedback about whether it be just subtly different ways of dealing with a particular situation or ideas that might have uh, uh, influenced or changed that uh, that outcome so we're really kind of like focusing where that coaching time is spent on the moments where revenue is being won and lost and differences that can uh, make a meaningful impact to a rep's performance.
0: I'm very passionate about this. I think what passes for average in sales is piss-poor. And it starts, well, one of the major areas that I think we both agree on is that discovery is atrocious. The average salesperson shows up and throws up, quotes and hopes, sells and runs. Why is discovery glossed over by salespeople and what can be done? I think
1: very often discovery is just not even a part of the process. So, you know, first of all, it's often just barely happens at all or it's, you know, it, it is part of an initial conversation or it is part of a, a demo or a pitch, but really the drive to talk about your product, your feature, your stories, rather than actually uncovering meaningful pain value that is real to that individual that is timely to that individual and ways that you're going to be able to change and influence that person or organization just first of all is just so often just not even part of the process then secondly and this is you know what we see countless times is that discovery happens but at a surface level and often just Almost like a checklist of qualification of does someone do this? Do they use this product? Do they find that this works effectively for them? And it's almost like the start of an archaeological dig that you start to see something appear in the grounds beneath you, but then you move on to the next like set of questions, and you know you've kind of like uh, brushed the uh, the top ground, started to perhaps understand or reveal something that is meaningful, and then failed to dig more deeply and find out more than that. And then lastly, I would say there is a real trait of not asking the difficult questions. We have about half the conversations that we have are based in the UK and about half the conversations we have are based in North America. That, this is one difference that we definitely see in those conversations is that as a generalization in the US and North America, Perhaps a little bit more willing to ask those difficult questions a little bit easier than, uh, than perhaps uh, sometimes us being uh, a little bit reserved and polite and uh, you know not wanting to uh, upset people for me it would be good to get your thoughts on this. This comes back to the problem in sales of people needing to be liked there's some great stats by a guy called Dave Curlin out in the uh, in the states scene yeah. which shows. First of all, that you know, needing to be liked is one of the biggest differentiators between top performers and others. But as a sales profession, it's almost 80% of people in the sales profession have this need to be liked. Right. Um, and that often is, is stops us asking those difficult questions that are needed as part of discovery, as long as obviously asked in the right way.
0: Absolutely. Well, first of all, if you're in sales, you're not there to get your emotional needs met. You're in sales to go to the bank. If you want to be liked, by a puppy, join the Red Cross, become a Samaritan, get out of sales and make way for people who actually want the job. Buyers want you to ask difficult questions because they're often too close to the problem themselves. And our job is to ask difficult, challenging, insightful questions that help them see their problem through a different lens. Most salespeople And by that, I mean the average, which is crap, ask information gathering questions. The slightly better ones ask questions to gain understanding. The really good ones ask questions to deliver insight. And their questions help the prospect see their world through a completely different lens, through fresh eyes, and to get to the root cause of their problem. And this touches on something that Kevin said earlier, which is that you gloss over. If all you're doing is you're looking at a surface level or symptom level, you're never going to get to the root cause, which is why people sell solutions that aren't really solutions. They're sticking plasters on a cancer. And the net result of that is that you don't solve the problem. You treat the symptom, but you don't treat the cause. And I was interviewing Amy Franco a couple of weeks ago, and she cited some KPMG research, which said that CEOs found that only six minutes in the hour Did the CEO find that the salesperson contributed any value at all? And this then relates very closely to another terrifying statistic. I think Dave Brock shared it with me, which is that 83% of first meetings do not result in a second meeting. Now, if you've invested all that time, money, resource, and effort getting an opportunity to the point where they'll meet you, I think it is a major dereliction of duty. It's an act of gross misconduct not to be prepared. And so the discovery process is basically a salesperson winging it. So in terms of the data that an individual company is learning through the use of a platform like Refract, is there any excuse why they shouldn't be able to put together a portfolio of a dozen questions based on the individual type of prospect that they're meeting, based on job function, industry, where they are in their life cycle, and so on? Is there any excuse for them not to be prepared?
1: I don't think there's any excuse not to be prepared. I think one of the hidden benefits that people see from this kind of product that they didn't anticipate is the value for reps of self-reflection, of being able to replay themselves those moments where they didn't go deeper, those moments of active listening was completely missed. Something key was mentioned, but there were no further uh, uh, questions. And then the other, I think, benefit that is massively uh, underappreciated or overlooked is seeing what great looks like, hearing other conversations from other individuals within their team, particularly obviously from their top performers, of what they do differently. Because when there is no coaching and there is no feedback, then you know, you'll ask me a question, I'll give a, quote your word, an average answer, which you know in truth might be a shitty answer, but it's okay. It's like... And no one ever tells me there's a better way that there was a better question to ask or that asking it in this way would elicit a much different uh, response or that asking this follow-up question. We live, and in fairness to our reps, they live in blissful ignorance because no one's helping them, no one's coaching them. And if what you do is okay, then you just carry on doing it in blissful ignorance.
0: I'll come back to that in a minute. I think one of the things that I see a lot of is reps allow the prospect to answer the question they want to answer rather than the one that they were actually asked. And they're afraid to dig deeper. So again, I'm curious in terms of the debriefing stage of the call, how are you helping reps to recognize when they're allowing the prospect to control the conversation by answering another question entirely?
1: So there are some like insights like talk listening ratios like the engagement in a conversation is measured how long someone monologues for how long they, they speak for uninterrupted which i always find quite ironic at this uh, at this kind of moment but those kind of things are, are surfaced and uh, are demonstrated in the product but i think again it's that coaching and self-reflection and perhaps, you know, I'm sure you'll have many of your own, just like to share a couple of the lines. And they're really simple. This is the other thing is that, you know, we're not, you know, this isn't necessarily difficult. Some of the lines that, that, that then can be used then will really help being able to dig deeper into uh, identification of value and where you can help. Some of the ones that I like like most are the, just the pause and the either repeat what someone's just said as a question. You know, if someone was saying to me, and you know, half RT missing quota at the moment, missing quota, just posing that back as a question. You know, like I need to know more about this. I need to know more about what you. Not necessarily me flaming this, not me giving you a multi-choice question. I need you to tell me more about why people are missing quota. You know, why people, are, why you think people are missing quota? What you think is happening? Tell me more about that. Just throwing that back, and just making sure that those. Uh, questions uh, are asked. my other one that I just we see use really really effectively as well is just a question can I ask you a difficult question so simple it's just like I can say that to you and then I can say anything next so I can ask for permission to say anything next without the worry about offending you preparing you for the fact that there is going to be a, a, a deeper question perhaps explaining to you like you know, in my experience I know that by understanding the answer to that, and you know, giving the context of why that needs to be asked, can I ask a difficult question? Such an easy question to ask. So impactful.
0: Well, I'll give you a great example of this. A few years back, I was selling into a media agency. And 18 minutes into never having met the CEO before, I said, do you mind if I ask you a really uncomfortable question without you getting upset? And she said yes, and I sort of laid it on thick with a trowel to soften her up because it was a doozy. And I looked her in the eye and I said, what's the probability of you still being in post in the next 12 months? And there was about a minute's silence.
1: And what did she 50
0: say? 50-50. Two weeks later, she was fired, but she'd signed the purchase order by then. But it was really interesting that you, know, you can't ask those difficult questions without permission. Exactly. And I think you've touched on another really important point as well, Kevin, which is that every set sentence must end on a question mark, not a full stop. If you end on a full stop, it invites the prospect to ask you yet another question. And that seeds control. And that means that you're not learning. If your lips are moving, you are learning nothing. The onus is on you as a salesperson and as a manager. The onus is on you to help your salespeople understand that their job is to gather information, not to give it. But for some reason, there's some ludicrous idea that people biologically, and they need to have the evidence presented to them. They don't. They need to have the opportunity to tell their story so that you can get their data, because they never argue with that. Why don't more managers focus on gathering information?
1: And this comes back to one of the things I just kind of flippantly threw into one of my previous answers about multi-choice answers. And again, you see this all the time in conversations. It's a trait and trend of people whose talk-listening ratios tend to be higher than top performers. Perhaps, again, that need to be liked, that I think I know the answer, so I'm going to give this as a multi-choice question. So your team aren't hitting quota at the moment. Is that because you're not making enough appointments? Is it because the quality of conversations isn't good enough? Or is it because of this? Yeah, you know, I've totally closed all the options. 100% of the time, you will give me one of those answers. You'll, you'll never say, actually, it's none of those. It's something else. You'll always give me one of my multi-choice answers, You know whether it's true or whether it's bullshit. I framed the question in such a way that... I'm going to give you the, you're going to get the answer that, that I think that you should give me, not actually really start to dig deep and really uh, understand the personalized value position.
0: A very depressing, but truly critically important piece of research. Miller-Hyman did this. It was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and I cannot believe it's improved. They followed 10,000 reps, and they measured the average length of time a sales rep could shut the fuck up before they had to fill the sound of silence with the sound of their own voice. Have a stab at how long that was.
1: Silence is golden. Again, it's another thing that is tracked in the platform. You can find those moments of silence, or you can find where those moments of silence don't uh, exist.
0: Would you be surprised if it was 0.6 of a second?
1: Not in the slightest. It's that kind of, again, it comes back perhaps to that need to be liked, comes back to that talking too, too much, those, those, two, you know, those two ingredients that are massive contributors. But the power of silence is huge, especially if you start talking and then you reveal something. If you stay silent, they'll carry on talking. You'll find out more. The need to jump in with a question is perhaps only required where there is a requirement for you to, you know, you'll, you'll need to ask certain questions to elicit the right value that you can offer. But most of the time, just staying quiet, having that period of uncomfortable silence, then uh, we'll uh, keep your prospect talking about things that you can discuss.
0: You guys are doing 500,000 recordings a month, aren't you? I'd yeah. love to know what the stat is on the average length of time a sales rep can stay quiet.
1: It's not very long. I don't have the exact, uh, <laughs> exact uh, figure for you. We we kind of sort of like um, surface where... You know, where silence has been over a certain amount of time and you know, where those moments of silence have happened. As I say, another is engagement. You can look at the engagement levels in a, in a conversation. as uh,
0: What do you mean by engagement?
1: there's going backwards and forwards in a level of revealing conversation, as opposed to, I'm just doing a long monologue, then I'll ask you a couple of questions, and then I'll start again with a long monologue. And,
0: this then comes to the next area that both of us are vehement about, which is the atrocious quality of qualification. Why would a salesperson go and meet a prospect only to gather the basic housekeeping information and not really establish is there a pain that we can fix, that we are well suited to fix, that they are willing and able to invest the time, the money, the resources, and give us access? Why is qualification so bad?
1: Not mentioning the challenges that we've done previously, that you know, if no one is telling you and no one is coaching you of what good looks like, then you'll carry along in, the, in blissful ignorance.
0: But surely, if you're, if you're beating your head against the wall and your head is bleeding, you can't blame the wall. At some point, as a salesperson, you have to look in the mirror and say, well, hang on, this isn't working. I think it is hard for
1: salespeople to have, not saying they shouldn't, but it is hard for them to have that self-realization and that sometimes that self-actualization. It is far easier to blame external factors. It is because of the competition. It's because we're too expensive. It's because these leads aren't good enough. excuse it's far, factory. It's, it's far easier to have those conversations, which there may or may not be any uh, truth or evidence in, Far easier to have those than to have again. When it comes back to that need to be liked, and perhaps the kind of traits that often we do find in that in salespeople, to have that self-reflection and that look at you know what you could do differently, what you should do differently. I think the other thing is again, you see this in conversations all the time. I'm just so excited and desperate to tell you all about our product, our features, our company, our stories, our whatever. The key word here is our or my, rather than talk about you, that I'm, you know, I'm just kind of going to ask a few questions until I can get to that and I can tell you about this amazing feature and this amazing product and you're going to love it. And like, this is how this company's done amazingly with it. Would you like to buy it?
0: I always equate it to a salesperson coming off holiday and then showing holiday snaps to strangers and wondering why they're not interested. Showing photos of the ugly baby when they've had a newborn. So what does the data tell us they need to be looking for when they are qualifying? What kind of questions they need to be asking more of?
1: So the discovery questions that are eliciting both value that are more emotive and personal. So again, maybe having more of of an insight into the individual as well as the organization. What does this mean for you? What would solving this change for your role? What would happen if this doesn't change for you personally? You're making it personal and emotive as well as an organization level. We are selling to people as well as uh, obviously selling to organizations and that sometimes gets
0: missed. Absolutely. Again, I think it's really important to focus people's attention on the generic versus the personalized approach to both marketing and selling. In outreach, in particular, if you are not able to enter the conversation that they are already having and enter into their world, then it's far too easy for them to say, send me some information or not interested. Again, we can obviously blame ignorance, which is salespeople don't know any better. But surely after a thousand cold calls and a thousand knockbacks, you'd learn that maybe you need to do something different. And the occasion where you accidentally ask the question about how it's affecting them personally, what impact it is having on their ability to meet quota, hit their bonus, get promoted, would cross their mind. So I'm curious, in terms of the data, again, what's the data telling us about the difference in effectiveness of personalized messaging versus generic? So
1: I think first of all i cannot agree with you more you you see that you know that very generic approach to any kind of outreach whether that's calls whether it's emails whether it's uh, you know linkedin and i think at a rep level just the lack of appreciation of how much generic unpersonalized crap decision makers get and without having that appreciation and without having that playbook, without having that coaching and feedback, you carry on doing the same thing and celebrate the rare moments of success where you get a, that breakthrough. We're lucky, I say lucky, we sell to sales leaders a product that is about improving sales conversations and the quality of our personalized outreach has to be at such a level where we're Obviously, you're going to get instantly called at you know instantly called out for it. The, the product that we sell about improving conversations, about improving outcomes for sales leaders, leaves us no hiding place, and that means that even though we will employ some first-time salespeople in an SDR role, that that onboarding and coaching to be able to get there and get there quickly, of being able to have that highly personalized approach to add value, to be able to uh, differentiate and uh, instantly change the dynamics of the conversation become really, really uh, important. For us, our outreach, our SDRs, will be prospecting no more than 20, 25 people a day, but in a highly personalized manner that means that we know exactly, when we pick up the phone, we know why we're picking up the phone to them. We know what we want to find out to identify if we can help them and if there is an opportunity. But our approach will be completely different to all of the other calls and conversations that they're going to have that day that are going to give us that initial standout to be able to give us the right to ask the questions that will help identify if there is, uh, you know, if there is value in fit or not.
0: I think you've touched on something really important here, which is that you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. And uh, taking the volume down, not 300 or 80 calls a day, 25, and do the research up front so that you have a purpose for making that call. And you're not wasting the prospect's time because they've got a lot of interruptions to their day. And if you can't make that connection in the first few seconds and engage them in a conversation that's important and meaningful to them, you have no business making that call. You're just vermin. I think the other thing that you touched on, which is really important, is the onboarding process. I think onboarding, and in particular, the development of playbooks, allows you to get people up to speed much more quickly, and it allows you to deal with the 60% middle layer of mush in your sales team and get them to perform closer to the top performers much more quickly in a measured and reliable manner. But so few organizations genuinely have a playbook. Again, what the hell's going on there? Why why would you not make that investment and learn from your debriefings? Use that to feed the playbook. Come off the calls, listen to calls, and coach the salespeople, and then help the individual develop a cookbook so that their behavior improves and it's personalized to them. This is crazy, isn't it? So
1: much is said about an organization. If you look at their onboarding and the majority of their onboarding is about their product, their features, their organization, because you're then breeding a sales team who might be great at talking about their products, their features, their organization. You're not helping people for the purpose that they should be there for, which is that we're going to ask Amazing questions to understand if there's value, to earn the right to explore the value that we might be able to add, and then to be able to quantify and, uh, and, and talk about how we can and what the impact of those, of that value might be. So looking at a company's onboarding program, I think is probably one of the biggest predictors of what salespeople in that organization are, uh, are going to be like and the, the problems or challenges that they may have because you see so often it is very focused around the company. I don't know what your experiences are, but I, either, I would even go further and say this gets worse in larger organizations where that kind of structured onboarding is sometimes taken out of sales hands or is largely taken out of sales hands and therefore just does become very organization, product, feature focused very little on understanding prospects and their and their problems and challenges and do to change their worlds.
0: I remember going to see a large engineering company and they flew this really nice guy from Texas called Tom and they did very expensive well heads and flow meters and all that kind of stuff for the petrochemical industry. And for 90 minutes, this guy Tom showed PowerPoint after PowerPoint of flow meters with milliamps and Voltaires and whatever else. And not one salesperson asked the question, Tom, that's great. Now, how the hell do I use that to sell it? And my experience of onboarding when I was an employee was to read the company operations manual, which was just, I mean, I, I remember falling asleep and hoping that I wouldn't get caught on my first day asleep at my desk. Then I spent time, maybe a day's training or a couple of days training or a weeks training on the product. And that was it. And that was considered to be a proper onboarding process. That's how you turn someone with A player potential into a C player inside four weeks. It's crazy. The other piece is that playbook. Why do they not have playbooks? It's a simple place that prevents upward delegation and wasting a manager's time. If they can look in the playbook, it's well-structured, well-indexed, and common problems are addressed in it, then the salesperson can find the solution themselves. What's going on there
1: I'm going to get on my high horse now because you know that comes that's hey. where products Light reflects can really they help you build that playbook, experience that playbook actually you know not, not even just reading the the playbook but actually experiencing and seeing that in uh, in action, and also now, even when something happens in a conversation that you, you know you don't have the perfect answer for, or don't know the answer for, there are ways of then that triggering actions out of that conversation. So, you know, a competitor is mentioned that you never had heard of before, That you know, that's mentioned in a conversation. You then get the video from your product team, the case study from your marketing team that gives you that just in time knowledge that perhaps you didn't have before. Playbooks, hopefully, moving on from those paper form in, our, in any case, but as you say, certainly no excuse for not having that.
0: I think they should be baked into your CRM. Wherever you are in the sales process within your sales methodology, it should then give you some quick drop-downs so that you could very easily identify some talk tracks. And also, it needs to go into the planning stage. Most salespeople show up and throw up, quote and hope, and sell and run. And they do these drive-by shootings where they just spray machine gun fire product information without doing any real qualification. When you consider the cost per lead, And the four out of five first meetings don't result in a second meeting. So you can multiply your cost per lead by five to get one opportunity through to a second meeting. It's criminal that there isn't that planning and preparation and rehearsal. And once you've come out, then doing a proper post-call debrief in writing, then verbally, and then using that to feed the next pre-call plan and to adjust the playbook. Uh, It's crazy. Okay. Tell me something. Who's influencing you? What are you reading, watching, listening to, or great books uh, that you've read in the past that you would recommend to the audience?
1: My reading and listening time is split very evenly between sales focused and SaaS focused. So I guess those are the you know the two worlds that I live in. I read lots of books. I buy more books than I read. I'll be the first to admit. And uh, yeah, there's uh, yeah there's there's plenty unread on the on the bookshelf and. And yeah, and particularly now, podcasts and, uh, and webinars, and there's some you know, fantastic uh, content out there. Some of the ones that I'm really a fan of um, at the moment from the sales side, I love Josh Braun.
0: B R A U N.
1: B R A U N, yep. yep. His content and his uh, podcasts are uh, top drawn. I mentioned Babe Curlin, a guy called Yakko from Winning by Design. He has, particularly if you're in SaaS sales, he has a book, SaaS Sales Blueprint, which is as good as any book specifically around uh, SAS sales teams as I've... Uh, What's played. his
0: name again? Yakko.
1: Yakko. I'm not going to pronounce his surname because I wouldn't do it just, just justice. <laughs> so J-A-C-C-O. The book is SaaS Sales Blueprint. That's uh, available at Amazon and all good bookstores. On the SaaS side, if you don't follow a guy called Dan Martell... I would question whether you even want to win in SAS. So uh, my missus has started calling uh, him my boyfriend. Um, <laughs> yeah, because all she ever hears on my, my, my screen is, uh, is, is Dan Martell. And yeah, I've been lucky enough to spend a few days with him last week uh, over in the States. So yeah, he's my flavor of the month uh, on the SAS side. And some of his content on, uh, on SAS is great.
0: Thank you. Well, a couple of books I've read recently, which I really found very helpful. The Patterning Instincts by Jeremy Lent. And that looks at how we basically think and look for and develop patterns. And it has some really interesting ramifications in terms of sales and management. The other one is You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy, which Gary Nesner has recommended. Very good. Again, it's really critical. I, I think you talk your way out of sales you listen and question your way into them. And I don't believe I've ever listened my way out of a sale. And I think it's the most under-trained and under-practiced skill. And listening is a, a full-body experience. You don't just listen with your ears. You're not just listening to the words. You're listening to what's being said, what's not being said. You're listening between the lines. You're observing body language, the tightness of the lips, the Vein pulsating on their forehead, blink rates, their body posture, breathing rate, all that kind of stuff. And if you've done the preparation and you've rehearsed, then you have time in the sale to really listen and pay attention. Okay, um, if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Kevin, age 23, to avoid a lifetime of misery and self sabotage, what advice would you give him?
1: Probably the same as the, uh, the idiot at the age of 45, you know, right? <laughs> we, still, we still make the uh, uh, same mistakes. Uh. What would I do differently as a, a 23-year-old self? I wish I knew what I knew now about sales when I was 23. I, you, know, I look, you know, obviously, I guess anyone says that, but you look back at yourself and like, if you don't look at your 23-year-old self and cringe, then what the hell have you been doing for the, for the time between uh, now and then? I think, from a perspective as a founder and CEO, it is all about the people. This is my second rodeo as a as a SaaS founder, and I'm really lucky. To the thing that I've got right this time is that I've got an amazing team of you know. I know it's very cliché, but you know we call it no dickheads. It's uh, you know there is a reflect culture, there is a yeah. reflect person and
0: it never employed me
1: <laughs> Never, never. Like, um, it's not about people that won't disagree and people that won't challenge and people that won't have strong opinions that's great it is that are they going to work effectively as a as a refract person as i say we have this kind of refract person in the past i've both founded and managed some teams with some great performers, but that I couldn't have necessarily said that about. And that stopped it really being, you know, really being effective as a as a as a team. And I know that sales is often and is often considered, a, you know, an individual pursuit and can be, but I think that having, especially in an early stage business, certainly, you know, having that team culture, winning together and losing together is is, is critical. So I think, yeah. There's some definite hiring mistakes that I would love to have uh, told my 23-year-old self.
0: I think that's really very fair. Um, we worked with Splunk um, when they were 61 million and took them, helped take them to over 1.1 billion over five years. And their number one rule was no dickheads. If someone was a top performer, but they didn't fit, then work them out of the business as quickly as possible. So absolutely, that's great advice. Okay. What are you struggling with at the moment yourself?
1: I get overwhelmed as a CEO founder with everything that I see on a daily basis that could be better. And, you know, you're just very overwhelmed and very easy to absorb yourself in all the things that you just know could be better. And sometimes you feel like you've got a path of how that could be better, but it isn't better today. So I do find sometimes that, yeah, I do find that sometimes quite overwhelming. I mentioned before, I just come back from uh, a few days in the States with with Dan Martel and I've come back, I've sat down with my team this morning and they're like, you know, I've tried to resist the temptation of saying like everything's broken. You know, we you know we should be doing this like this, we could be doing this like that. We don't even do this. I do find that kind of quite overwhelming and I know that I need a really strong team behind me. I'm not great at the follow-through. I'm perhaps better at the ideas and the vision, the, the follow-through and the detail, and I need that, that team uh, around me to, uh, to do that. But I do, find that, yeah, I do find that overwhelming, I think. And this is the same for a sales leader as a, a CEO and founder. It can be a really lonely place. There are only a certain number of people that you can really open up to. Yeah, having those people do exist in your life that you can be really honest with and open up to can be uh, really critical. I do find that a challenge, hopefully improving, but I've still got a way to go.
0: Have you read Marcus Buckingham's book, The One Thing You Need to Know? I haven't, no. No, Really interesting. Marcus was the head of research for Gallup and he spearheaded a 29-year research program where they interviewed half a million top performers across six continents Ninety-minute interviews with each of them, and out of that, develop the Strengths Finder profile. Have you come across that? Yep, yep. Okay. And his core message is surround people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant, and really focus on creating. Uh, I think it was Stephen Covey's son. I can't remember which one, and he was focused on creating an environment of constructive conflict where. There are rules. So our coaching process uh, that was developed by Bill Bartlett, the important thing is to make sure that people know that they can say what they need to say without fear of retribution and understanding that we can argue and arguing constructively is a valuable thing to do. But once we've agreed a course of action, then we move out of that and we take action and we perform and the problem is that too often i think people are afraid of if their egos are fragile they don't encourage that kind of conflict or they encourage too much of it but then they don't take action on what's been discussed and it's really important to prioritize as well so identify which fights you can win and which ones you need to put on the back burner and not take on too much because i see a lot of leaders suffer from upward delegation. And upward delegation means they get run ragged. They become a bottleneck. And as a result of that, then things start to slow down because they haven't delegated. The decision-making process hasn't been pushed down the chain of command. And so they end up spending too much time doing and not enough time designing. So I don't know if that's helpful.
1: It's so true. And I think that
0: having that culture where,
1: where everyone can comfortably challenge and that, you know, that, that is considered, uh, uh, considered normal is really important. I know we're wrapping up, but I think it could be relevant for some of your audience. Someone said something to me last week which re- really hit home and it just came to me there as, uh, you know, as something that, that you're struggling with. They coach sales leaders, CEOs, executives, and they say there is one thing that every single person struggles with And that is at home. The people that are successful, that invest in themselves, they read books, they go to conferences, they do training to better themselves. When was the last conference you went to on being a better father, on being a better husband? And therefore, you walk into that home environment and all of a sudden, you don't have these magic powers and strengths that that perhaps you do in your day job. Absolutely. so So true.
0: You've seen all the sales trade press around wellness and well-being and stress and all of that kind of stuff. And I think part of the problem is that people spend so much time fretting over stuff they cannot control. And they don't prioritize home life. Home life is so important. You cannot separate Kevin Beals, the human being, from Kevin Beals, the CEO and founder. And it's you know, just one person. So take care of that stuff. And I'm delighted that you brought it up. I think it's a great thing to finish off on. You really have to have that balance and work on being a better human being and really prioritize the people in your life who matter. Let's face it, if you don't make a sale, no one dies. But you're never going to get back the time that you didn't spend with your kids when they were growing up.
1: I've actually always struggled with this, that like... uh... You'll get on a train or a plane to see a prospect, but then you don't find the time to go and visit your mom or to go and visit your, your sister or whatever it is. I always struggle, struggle with that. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's part of the, the dilemma that we, uh, you know, that we all face.
0: Absolutely. So, Kevin, thank you so much for this. It's been really interesting. Tell me, how can people get hold of you? So we are Refract,
1: based up in Newcastle in the UK. My, uh, drop me an email. Um, I'm kevin at refract.ai. And uh, if I can uh, help in any way, then uh, I'd be delighted to do so. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Beals, B E A L E S. I'd be delighted to hear from anyone that uh, had, uh, had listened to this. And uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me on. And thank you for uh, anyone that's uh, listened and participated.
0: Excellent, Kevin, thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please comment, like, and share. If there's somebody that you believe would be a great guest for the Inquisitor podcast, please get in touch with me at mcauchi at and let me know who they are. Perhaps connect us on LinkedIn or make a personal introduction. So that's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy
1: selling.